We turn then in God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, we're taking leave of uh, Mark's Gospel for a couple of months, returning back to that 14th chapter uh, later, the Lord willing. For uh, the next several weeks, we'll be in Luke chapter 1 and 2, making our way through this account of Jesus' birth. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7 this morning, but uh, our message today is based upon verses 1 through 4. Let's hear then God's breathed out word to us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again, thanking you for this word that you have preserved Thanking you for the portion that was read this morning, and as we saw in there, that we may know the certainty of the truths of the gospel. Pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob this morning, that you'll give him your words to speak, and that we will take those words and apply them to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. So if you're following the outline of this morning, there are three main points as we make our way through these first four verses. First of all, Luke speaks of many undertakings. We want to look at that. What does Luke mean by that? Many undertakings. Secondly, the fact that Luke desires to give to us an orderly account. An orderly account. And thirdly, the certainty about teaching. The certainty about teaching. So we begin, first of all, with this expression that Luke gives to us that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us. Some versions simply shorten that to say there have been many undertakings. What, is, what does Luke mean by that? Perhaps at first glance we'd say, well, seeing Luke follows the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, that's probably what Luke is referencing. So we would say the many undertakings to give us a narrative that has been accomplished amongst us. Well, that was probably Matthew's gospel and that was probably Luke, Mark's gospel. 
But if that's the conclusion we were to jump to, we probably would have jumped a little too quickly. We might have better stopped and thought and reflected a little bit more about that. Because it seems like one of the concerns Luke has in giving to us the Gospel of Luke, that it be an orderly account. Would we say then that Matthew is not an orderly account? No, it would appear if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you get a pretty orderly account. Would we say that Mark's Gospel is not an orderly account? I don't think we'd want to go there either. Having been in Mark for well over a year, we come to understand how precise Mark has been. So he can't be referencing Matthew and Mark. There is also the real likelihood that Luke's gospel might actually have been the first one written and that Matthew and Mark aren't even written at this particular time, although that for sure is not known precisely. The fact that there have been many undertakings, though, is, is not a statement, in, at least as it comes off in the Greek, of some sort of negative, that there was something wrong with the undertakings. Because you note that in verse 3, Luke comments, it seemed good to me also. So I'm doing the same thing. He's not pointing at these other undertakings as, as having been bad or there was something deficient in them. They just weren't orderly. So what is Luke referring to when he talks about the many undertakings? Well, it's what follows. Just as those, verse 2, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. That's what they have. They, they, they have been going on eyewitness accounts of that which has taken place in the life of Jesus Christ. But they're not in an orderly manner. Now imagine for just a minute that, that you, you've, you've just purchased or somebody blessed you with a, a jigsaw puzzle, a 1500 or a 2500 jigsaw puzzle. All of those pieces fit. But they're sort of random, aren't they? There's one here, there's one there. This piece is a piece of the puzzle, but trying to figure out where it went is a little bit hard. See, this is what they have. They have eyewitnesses' accounts. Somebody said, I was there, perhaps, at, at the day in which Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is what I recall Jesus saying. Another eyewitness re recalls the feeding of the 5,000. Another witness recalls the feeding of the 4,000. There are other eyewitnesses who report about various things in the life of Jesus. But they're like all pieces, true pieces, factual pieces. There's nothing wrong with the piece. It's just we don't know at that point in time how they all fit together. How do these events 
sequence themselves? What is the order by which these events occur? So he's not saying anything about the eyewitness accounts other than that they have them and they're factual. But nobody, as, as far as Luke is reporting to us at this time, has set together an orderly account of all of these eyewitness accounts. But there is a second thing mentioned, isn't there? Look at verse 2 again. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now John, in his gospel, uses the word that word, word, to mean something very specific. He means by it, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Luke, however, in his gospel, does not use the word, word, to reference solely Jesus Christ. Luke uses it to speak of the gospel. So he's saying this. We have the events of Jesus' life. Some of them have come to us from eyewitnesses. Others have come to us from those who are ministers of the gospel. The word minister here does not mean somebody in some ordained capacity. It doesn't mean somebody who went through seminary and got a degree. It's not somebody who has some theological education. The word minister here means what it means in the original, servant. They are a servant. They are an attendant of the word. And by the time Luke writes the gospel, there are many such attendants of the word. They're not eyewitnesses, but they attend to the word. They have heard the word. They are ear witnesses. They have heard from the mouth of those eyewitnesses what has happened. And they have been faithful ministers, servants of that word. They have kept that word. They have not distorted the word. They have not changed the word. Those are out there. It, it, it's almost as if you could think back to that jigsaw puzzle and say this. We have eyewitnesses who are the pieces that give us the straight edges and the outline. But we also have the ministers of the word who have given us the other pieces of the puzzle. They're not eyewitnesses, but they have given it to us. They have passed this along to us. All of that collection of information is out there. All the pieces of the puzzle are included. All the events of Jesus' life are there. Factual, historical events. There have been many undertakings. Luke now says, I'm going to do so too. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account. I'm going to put it together. I'm going to give you an account, the narrative of the life of Jesus. Now that word orderly 
means chronological. Hence, we're going to begin at the birth of Jesus, and we're going to, in the Gospel of Luke, make its way through the death, through the resurrection, and to, up to, through the ascension of Jesus, his earthly ministry. He's going to give us that account, that narrative, in an orderly manner. But orderly also means with a purpose. He is fixed on a reason for giving this orderly account. That you may know the certainty of that which you have been taught. He, he's focused on that. Now, you know that when you tell a story, when you tell of an event, sometimes you have to back the story up, right? right? You're telling the story about perhaps, maybe from this last week, you went out hunting and you were in the deer stand and you're going to tell us the story about the buck you shot or the buck you missed. But then in the middle of the story you say, oh, oh, that reminds me, this little piece has to fit into this. Did I forget to tell you? I, I need to add this in. So yes, the scope that Luke is going to follow is going to be chronological. One event after another. Will there be times, though, when Luke in his gospel is going to stop and say, I got to tell you, I got to fill in some information here so that you understand the present account that I am giving you. Yes, the word orderly includes that understanding, so that there is a purpose, so that there is a clarity in the presentation. Now, I've been saying, I've repeated it several times already, that the book is written by Luke, and you say, I didn't see that, Pastor Bob. How, how did you come to the conclusion that this is, look, well, the title tells us, right? Um, we better not go by the title because that's not necessarily part of the text, right? So we, we have to have some other evidence. So let me take you, keep your finger here at Luke 1. We're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 1. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Obviously, based upon those verses, whoever wrote Acts to Theophilus is the same person who wrote to Theophilus before. Oh, we see that name in Luke 1, don't we? Verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. And you say, well, that still doesn't point to Luke. It points to Theophilus. It doesn't mention Luke. How do we get to Luke? The answer is this. As you go through the book of Acts, 
The, the number of references are far too many, but the, as you go through the book of Acts, recounting the missionary journeys primarily of Paul, Luke, on some of those journeys, accompanies him. And it's mentioned in the text. And Paul was joined by, and it'll say Luke and a number of others. And then later, the text will reference the others, but not the name Luke. But a pronoun is inserted. And we. And we. And we. So if you have all the other names, but you have Luke's name omitted, but included in the pronoun we, it would be apparent that the one who is telling us of these events is Luke. We. Therefore, okay, we come back and we say, well, not only then is Acts being recorded for us as having come to us from Luke, but so is the first book he wrote to Theophilus. But there's some other things about Luke we, we have to understand. Luke is a doctor, a physician of the day. Physicians by nature are those who have a desire to know, to understand, so that they may act. God, when he inspires the word, for men like Luke to write, as we have mentioned several times, does not do so mechanically. It's not, there are a bunch of robots and they just stand there with a pen in their hand and then it's, oh God, inspire me to write. And the hand just starts moving. The Bible is not some sort of Ouija type board. God allows men to use their natural abilities, understandings, mindset to write that which he desires to be written. So that out of their individual personality comes God's word. Luke, as a physician, wants to know, understand, so that action may be taken. That's why he's digging into this. For Luke, history then, as important as it is for the physician. You ever notice when you go to the, the doctor, they always are talking about the past. I see you were here before. Or I see you were here before. They're looking at their notes. I see you were here for this and this and this. They deal with the past in order that they can understand the relevance of the problem that you are there with now. Luke is going to dive into history. Because history is vital. Not only to the truth, but history is vital to understanding the truth. And history then becomes vital to making the correct action. When you go in for surgery, you want that surgeon to know history. You want him to know where the heart 
is located based upon history. You want them to know where your appendix is located and not start taking out a piece of your heart. He bases that what? Upon history. History is vital to knowing the truth so that you can take the appropriate action. Perhaps some of you heard the, 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 the little diatribe one of the radio news guys went on, I think it was last week now, uh, about the, the lack of historical education in our world today. Here becomes a good topic for those of you with teenagers to have at lunch today. Ask your teenager who's in high school, junior high, who the following people are. Who is Mao Zedong? Don't hint to them. Don't give it away. Just ask. Who is Mao? Or ask who Joseph Stalin is. Or ask them if they know who Patrick Henry is. Ask them if they know the significance of November 22, 1963. Ask them if they know who Mussolini was. Ask them if they know what the Mayflower Compact was. And no, it wasn't a beauty product. Ask them if they know who John Wesley was. Have that discussion. If you don't know history, you don't know the truth. If you don't know the truth, you're not going to make the right choices in life. And I can almost guarantee you that anybody over 80 years of age right now is going, yeah, that's what I see happening around me in this country. People who don't understand the past. Luke wants us to understand the past. Look at how he frames the beginning of the narrative. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Notice how he frames the birth of Jesus Christ in the historical narrative right in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when quirinius was governor of syria see all of those statements are factual statements they're historical statements why does he make them so that we understand the truth there is truth being told us the truth about the one who is going to be the forerunner of the Christ, the one who is going to be the voice crying out in the wilderness, the truth about the historical reality of the coming of the Son of God into this world. It's not clothed in mysticism. It's not clothed in some sort of spiritualism. It's clothed in historical reality. I thought it good that an orderly account be given. God in his infinite wisdom 
moves the heart of a man whose very nature is to dig into things. To dig into the stories, the truths, the events, the realities of the life of Jesus Christ and to present them in the way that only a doctor would in an orderly account. But there is a second name, right? In this orderly account, it's written by Luke, but it's written for Theophilus. Now, who is this guy? Well, the name Theophilus means friend of God. The only other thing we know about him is that he is addressed by Luke in Luke chapter 1 as the most excellent Theophilus. Every other time that title, those words are used, it refers to somebody who is in a position of authority in the Roman government. So what we can gather by the use of the term is this. That Theophilus is in some position within the Roman government who has become a convert, not to Christianity, but sometime in the past he converted to Judaism. And now he is beginning to hear some of these narratives, some of these puzzle pieces about this person, Jesus. We would say, in, in modern terminology, Theophilus is a seeker. He's trying to find out. What about this Jesus that I'm hearing about? It's interesting if you go back to the Acts chapter 1 passage and look at how Luke addresses Theophilus, something has changed. In Luke 1, he is most excellent Theophilus. Acts 1, he is O Theophilus. What happened? Christians never used titles in reference to one another. We are all part of the body of Christ, right? I have a minister friend in the OPC who just absolutely despises being called reverend, <laughs> okay? He said, I'm no more reverend than anybody else. I'm not more revered than another person. He doesn't like it when we talk about fathers and brothers, okay? Eh, we're, all, we're all men. there's There's no elevation of position or status. That's the way the Christian church was. How does Paul speak of himself? Oh, I am the missionary par excellence. No, it's exactly the opposite. I am the chief of sinners. So what has happened? Well, just based upon the address, it would appear Theophilus read the account And by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, he believes the account. Now he's numbered. The seeker 
was found. But think of that. Think of the purpose of this gospel. The purpose of this gospel is to answer the questions of people who are looking for truth regarding Jesus Christ. And where do we begin? Do we begin at the cross? No. We begin at the birth. We actually begin before the birth. See, this is what, this is what our modern world misses, right? Evangelism today is tell them they're a sinner and then tell them they're a sa there's a Savior. Luke says, no, evangelism begins with this. There was a priest on duty and his wife is barren. That's where evangelism begins. That's where you begin dealing with the seeker. That's the account that needs to start. You need to put those pieces of the puzzle together first. But see, if we think about this, then, wait a minute. If Luke's gospel and the account, which I would say is, that's what we have in the Bible, this is the orderly account in its whole, but if that account, then, is good for the seeker, is it not good also for the believer to stay rooted in that truth? Is it not good for us, again, this year, to dig back into Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2? What is God telling us? What message is God conveying? What historical reality does God want me this season to grab hold of as truth? This is the message that the church has lost. This message of historical reality. The message of the historical reality of the entirety of God's Word. It's lost it. It isn't there anymore in the evangelical church. Then it must also be good for the elderly saint. And it must also be good for the covenant child. This word, this word, this word, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say than to you he has said? What more could he say? A few moments ago, Travis and Carrie stood before us and said, we believe what is in the Word of God, we believe its truth, and we will do our utmost. We will do everything we possibly can. That's the meaning of the words. We will do everything we possibly can to make sure that Samuel hears this truth. We will place him wherever this word is taught 
so that he may hear the truth. That's the promise you made. That's the promise you made regarding your children. Not scheduling that you need to be at coffee at 11.10 rather than your children in catechism and Sunday school. You promised! And we promise as a church in a baptism, we will do everything we can to encourage them. We will do everything we can to help, to assist them in raising and training Samuel. Everything that needs to be done, we will do to make sure that God's truth is taught, that God's truth is conveyed, that this historical reality is presented. In fact, so important is it, we're going to set a godly example. We're going to show by our own lives, we're going to show by our own hunger and thirsting and passion for the Word of God. We're going to show it to Samuel by our own life. We will show him how important God's Word is. We will show him by living it. Because we believe the Word of God. We confess its truth. Therefore, we will live this from day to day. Notice how Luke ends this section. It seemed good to me also, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time's past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Why did God give us the word? So that we may have the certainty of knowing that which we have been taught is the truth. And if you were going to start this story, let me ask you, would you start it where Luke does? Because look at where the story begins. The story begins with a barren woman who's going to have a son. A woman for whom it is impossible to have a child is going to have a child. That's where he begins the story. Why? Because that's the truth. God does the impossible. That is what the message of Christ is all about. God does the impossible. But notice this, as we go through this. He starts with a barren woman who has a child, but what does he dwell on next? A virgin who is pregnant. If you were trying to write a book to convince people would you begin there? No, but God does. <laughs> That's where God begins. To reveal to us the glorious truth that Jesus, the Savior, is the Christ, 
the Messiah, the Son of God. Oh, my friends, hear it anew. Hear it anew like Samuel's going to hear it anew. Hear God's truth. And when we step back from the word of God, when we step back from the totality of what God has given to us, what do we see? But that every piece fits properly and creates for us a glorious truth. God, in the gospel of his Son. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you for this opening reminder that Luke gives. We could easily just pass by these four verses and, and not really think or dwell upon them. But here, Lord, you give to us the basis of the word. You give to us the reason for the word. You give to us the reality of the word. Well, Lord, may we soak in deeply your truth. Not the truth of the world, not the truth that the world thinks is happening at Christmas. Not even the truth that many Christians get led astray with. But your truth. The realities. So that we may serve you. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.